Everybody dies, don't they? Everybody come back, don't they? Isn't that so? You tried to get into the locked room today, didn't you? How do the dead come back, Mother? What's the secret? The Curse of Maharnanuskachan by Angus Wolfe Murray My childhood was scattered and quite lonely. When asked, where are you from, I answered Scotland without much conviction. I enjoyed the nomadic independence of an emotional refugee. I was lucky. My grandparents owned large estates in the highlands. Fertile valley pastures were farmed or let to tenants, and the rest divided into crofts, deer forests and moorland. At a tender age, I was initiated to the rites of aristocratic modes and manners, what I should and what I shouldn't do who I should and should not speak to, what I must and must not wear, why it was forbidden to play with the gardener's son in the nursery, but tolerated in the servants' hall. Once old enough to express my feelings, I made my parents understand that I did not relish such restrictive practices. Memories of the castle marred the pleasure of Highland holidays, rooms cold and dusky even in the middle of the day, no central heating, a private electricity supply working off the burn, and dungeons cold as caves oozing snail wine over pitted flags. One of my aunts was drowned on the morning of her tenth birthday, and both my uncles were killed in the war, a tragedy that deeply affected my grandparents. My mother admitted that other families suffered as much without resorting to extremes of morbid self-accusation. Perhaps the contrast was too great, she said, as children, we were especially happy. There were five, all of whom excelled at one thing or another. London society of the thirties was dominated by their charm and beauty, and throughout those doomed and brilliant summers the castle was filled with friends from the south. There was shooting, fishing, stalking, sailing on the sea loch, endless games and parties. I remember the shadows of trees lengthening across the leafy lawn in autumn and thinking that the castle itself would be swallowed in darkness so that the inner dark would meet the outer dark and together create a blackness unknown even in the vaults of Egypt. It was then that I became frightened and stayed close to the fire. My grandfather died while I was still at Oxford. He was 72. My cousin Hugh, son of the eldest uncle, inherited. He was six years older than me and worked for a merchant bank in Toronto. He came home immediately, bringing his Canadian wife Anne, my grandmother left and went to live in Aberdeenshire with my Aunt Magda. I heard snatches of gossip here and there, Anne's renovation of the castle, Hugh's plan for the estate, rumours of an interest in deer farming, something not attempted outside Scandinavia, causing disquiet amongst the local gentry who expected invitations to stock during the season. Obviously, Hugh was having none of that. It sounded encouraging. He had been brought up by his mother in Hampshire, and had spent even less time in Scotland than I. An extraordinary likeness to his father upset my grandmother so much that instead of seeing him, she wrote copious letters explaining everything that was going on so that he would know, if nothing else, the names of the estate workers and what jobs they did. Hugh told me later that he filed these letters without opening them, so that when my grandfather died, he brought them out and laid them across the floor of his flat in Toronto and opened every third one. I spent six and a half hours on that bloody floor, he said. By the end, I could tell you the name of the stonemason's son-in-law and why the joiner's wife couldn't have children. I knew who was a good worker, who was a bad worker, who poached salmon, who snared pheasants. 
what was planted in the garden, when and by whom, the condition of the cook's varicose veins before and after her operation. Of course, when I arrived and met them, they were very impressed. I contacted you a week before leaving Oxford and asked whether I could stay for a summer at the Shepherd's Bothy at the Loch. He thought it was an excellent idea and said that I could stay for as long as I liked. He seemed genuinely pleased to hear from me. Spring comes late in the Highlands, and when it does, it is less dramatic than the sensual bursting of wet buds in rural England. Winter hangs deep in the hills long into April and May, and there are moments when you imagine the dead land will remain forever still. But when the green shoots push up through the white stalks and wild flowers pierce damp hussocks beside the river and along the shores of the loch, it is more wondrous in its miracle because the need for reassurance is essential to combat the harsh realities. Beyond the castle, towards the western regions, the land is barren and bleak, fearful with a grandeur that defies beauty. The lost trees of the old forest lie white and rotting against the brown grass. Eagles and hoodies, deer and foxes live there, no people. Once this glen and others like it was filled with thriving communities. Now the heartland is a forgotten wilderness. Even in the eyes of the crofters who reside at the outer reaches of the loch, you can sense a wound going back so far, an agony of the soul unchecked by whisky, state charity or tourism. The dark lines of this nation's dead scar the earth, if not in fact certainly in spirit. Even Hugh, the new laird-in-chief of the clan, knew what existed once, a tribal system based on communal enterprise and sharing, owing all, and yet owning all, had passed away. He was a rich man, a farmer. He played the role, wore the kilt. It's expected of me, he said. I laughed, remembering my early lessons in the nature of duty. Anne and Hugh had taken care over the work they had done at the castle. I felt the emphasis had changed. Anne, being Canadian, was free from the strictures of the English upper class. She was energetic and conscientious, eager to learn and understand. They had plans not only for deer farming, which had begun already on a limited scale, but for the renovation of derelict cottages and the building of chalets as holiday homes, the opening of a shop in the village to encourage weavers and potters and craftsmen of all sorts, and the possible construction of a deep freeze unit and smoking house so that salmon could be dressed and frozen direct from the river. I settled into the bothy. Although an outsider, I was surprised by the reception I received from so many of the estate workers who remembered my visits as a child. To them... I was a member of the old family, more so than Hugh who appeared too modern with his ambitious ideas and foreign wife. I tried to reassure them by expressing my enthusiasm. They smiled, nodded, but remained suspicious. The situation was intriguing. I waited and watched. Spring faded into summer and the hot blue days when the wind fluttered in the trees and deer wandered to the river in the early evenings, filled with a timeless sense of life's slow evolution. Trout jumping in the loch, martins diving and soaring about the eaves, bats jagged against the moon, the zing of insects, chirp of small birds in the reeds, midges rising out of the marshes like clouds of dusty pollen. The bothy was four miles from the castle, up the track that followed the loch half its length along the northern shore. No shepherd had lived there since the war, although the building remained strong with thick stone walls and a slate roof already green with moss. I had a rayburn stove in which I burnt sticks and coal, and a room beyond with a bed and a chest of drawers and a cupboard. From my door I could see where the loch turned west in the shape of an L, 
and the mountain cut sheer into the water. At that point, below the cliff, was a Mahananuskachan whirlpool, an extraordinary natural fault capable of dragging down swimming stags. At the cliff face was a cavern leading to a narrow underwater channel, and when the wind blew from the southwest, the spin of the pool was wider than the length of a tall pine tree. Anne tried to persuade Hugh to let Frogman go down to discover the distance of the channel and where it emerged. Hugh would placate her with vague promises, but I knew nothing would come of it. My life adapted to the quiet run of the days. I dug a small vegetable garden at the front of the bothy and wired the sheep pen for chickens. I bought a second-hand chainsaw and an old van and spent the bright still afternoons when fishing was impossible cutting wood for the stove. Twice a week I dined at the castle, and occasionally Anne and Hugh would picnic at the loch and we'd take the boat out. I didn't question the relevance of my existence or allow myself to brood on the future. I was twenty-two. I'd spent the last fifteen years at schools and university. I knew I wanted to write, and as the weeks passed became more and more convinced of what this should be. I kept a diary of thoughts and ideas that occurred to me during the day, and soon a pattern emerged two themes simultaneously recurring. The first was my impression of the land itself, the emptiness of the wilderness area. The second concerned the family, my mother's childhood filled with joy and promise, followed so fast by a desperate sadness. Somewhere these two themes connected. Hugh spent his time in the estate office of Roger Cornish, my grandfather's rector, the difficulty of changing change in a system that had worked for years on the basis that every conversation must be prefaced with lengthy inquiries about the health of each member of a man's family was hard enough, especially for Hugh, who understood the rudiments of North American efficiency. There was no sense of urgency, no desire for innovation, a soft underbelly of feudalism, combined with a romantic notion of clannish brotherhood, enhanced the status quo and made progress erratic. Roger had given up the struggle and was content to let things follow their own course. He was an Englishman whose ambitions did not extend far beyond his salmon rod, his twelve bore, and a full case of rare malt whisky. Locally he was well liked. He turned a blind eye to the evasions that were perpetrated in the name of the estate. A little honest poaching never ruined a river, he would say. And if the stalkers are selling the odd beast during hind season, God knows they aren't paid much. As long as discretion was maintained and a certain restraint exercised, why make a fuss? It was only when outsiders intervened, poachers from the south with tins of C-Mag and high-velocity rifles, that Roger, the police and the stalkers acted together. That's as it should be, he told me. We don't want the mafia here. This is the mafia, I said. He poured another of his mature highland malts and passed me the glass. You're in a unique position to observe the discrepancies of an archaic system, he said, but don't get it into your head that change is always for the best. I know the problems of these people. They come and tell me. I know who's operating an illegal still, who's taking dull money and working jobs on the side. That's not important compared with retaining an understanding so that life can operate to the best advantage of all concerned. The Highlander is a proud and independent chap, cunning as a fox, I'll grant you, but he has to be. He knows that, and he takes care whom he trusts, if he trusts anyone. He trusts us, or rather uses us, 
but that's all right because I recognise his loyalty remains first towards himself and secondly towards the continuation of his way of life. You can't tell a Highlander what he should be doing, how much money he should be making. He won't listen. Why should he? Now he was talking of putting up the crofters' rents. It's madness. I don't care how absurd it may seem to someone fresh out of Harvard, or wherever it was, but for the people themselves it's an insult, because they feel that the land belongs to them, which it did in the old days. And look at politics. Where else do you find liberals winning seats? Lloyd George is dead and gone. You wouldn't know it. The younger generation think they're anti-establishment, against authority. The Highlander invented the word. You must accept that from the start, or you'll find they're agin you. Hugh was easing Roger out by taking more and more responsibility himself. He imported an accountant from Edinburgh to go through the books and advise on methods of improving office efficiency. Obviously, money was being borrowed and not repaid. Rents lapsed unaccountably. Bad debts carried on over for years without complaint. Files disintegrated into a series of scrawled cross-references and notes from Roger written in an indecipherable hand on the sleeve of envelopes. Hugh called it a miser's den of hoarded waste. The accountant stayed six weeks before departing in a state of nervous exhaustion. From this came the third theme of my prospective novel, also connected to the others by a thread of circumstantial invention, the Highlander's jealous hold on the property of his father, a communal distrust of visitors disguised by guileful charm, passions lying at the heart of pride, already damaged by history, and now directed towards the breakdown of progressive change. Anne was forever arranging bazaars and charity evenings, organising the tourist shop, supervising the renovation of the cottages and planning sites for the chalets. Everything was contained in that bright smile, the immediacy of response, so that enthusiasms appeared less sincere than actual, encouraging noises to satisfy the curiosity of the natives. In June, she caught a virulent flu bug and went to bed. Hugh asked me to drop by if I had time and cheer her up. I did so. She talked of a belief in positive thinking, the act of creating atmosphere for constructive relationships, and confided that there were days when she came home and wept with frustration. I found her awkward, strangely uncertain. I guess I'm naive, she said, but sometimes I want to stand on a table at one of those damn meetings and pull off my clothes just to force some kind of response. She laughed. You must think I'm crazy, she said. She was embarrassed. It sounds very sane to me, I said. Hugh would be devastated, she said. I told her about my novel and the problems of conflicting themes. You're right, she said. I used to spend hours marvelling at that beautiful thing you know. The mountains and the water and the sky, the peace of it, the real open space. It intoxicated me. She laughed again. But when I walk alone with the dogs, which I do whenever I can, I recognise what you're saying. It's like I'm a stranger in a foreign land. You are, I said. So am I. Sure, but then you feel this oppression. Yes. I feel it too, but differently. I feel surrounded, like I'm not alone. The good weather broke and the rain returned. Dark grey days when clouds hung low over the hills creeping into the glen like pillows of damp hay. Anne waited for me. It was always the same. I arrived for lunch and we spent the afternoons together, sitting in front of the fire in the drawing room, 
talking or playing backgammon. She said that she had been sick more than once and often woke dizzy with nausea. He was worried. Three weeks after the illness, she seemed depressed and listless. I can't interest her in anything, he said. One day as I was leaving, the clouds lifted and sun glistened on the marsh reeds beside the road. Anne squeezed my arm. Let's go out, she said. It's beautiful. We took the dogs and walked along the edge of the loch, across the burn, across the far side of the river. Water ran down the hills through peat hags and their tussocks, breaking into pools. The sudden heat hatched a plague of midges that clung to our faces and hands. We began to climb. We mustn't go too far, I said. You're tired. She looked at me, the sun full on her cheeks. I was aware how pretty she was. You've changed, I said. People don't change, she said. They adapt. What do you mean? I adapt to you. That can't be good. It's good for me. The silence embraced us, filling the air with feelings neither dared to express. I turned and looked back at the castle. She stood close to me now. Her arm touched the rib of my sweater. This is mad, I said. I know it's mad, she said. I began to walk down the hill. She followed, her small, delicate body moving easily over the sodden earth. We came to an open space of clear, short grass on a mound beside the river. She stopped. I want to show you something, she said. She called the dogs. They came bounding out of the peat hags, stopping at the edge of the grass. Come on, she cried. They circled us, whining, almost on their bellies. How did you know? I asked. It's happened before, she said. Across the river were the marshy flats leading to the road, and beyond the road, the castle, square and dark against the black trees. Suddenly I felt cold. Hugh's car appeared round the curve at the edge of the wood. We crossed the river at the shallow ford and waded through the reeds. Midges whined in our ears again. We stood on the gravel path and waited, the dogs panting from their run, tongues dripping. I looked over the river at the grassy knoll. What do you think it is? Anne said. I don't know, I said. I want to see you, she said. You are seeing me, I said. I want to see you tomorrow. Why? Will you come? I don't know. I don't know if I can. Please. We heard Hugh shouting. The dog scrambled through the rhododendrons, squealing for him. Anne and I walked up the drive. Hugh greeted us. How are you? he called. She smiled. It's time I stopped being an invalid, she said. When I arrived the next day as arranged, Anne acted as if nothing had happened. I felt confused and hurt. She bustled through lunch, impatient and nervous, busy with details and new plans. I made an excuse and returned to the bothy. I considered packing my suitcase there and then, but something stopped me. The foolishness of it. An exaggeration on my part of an incident that existed only in my own mind. Escape would defeat its own purpose. Also, I had the notes of my novel. I would devote the remainder of the summer to that. Two weeks later... Hugh told me that Anne was pregnant. It'll make all the difference, he said. To what? I asked. Already my appreciation of Hugh was waning. He seemed more arrogant than enlightened, more narrow-minded than liberal. His views on what was good for the crofters and the estate did not coincide with local opinion, in fact constantly aggravated it. He wondered why jobs weren't completed on schedule, why everyone had to be told things three times, why the village policeman failed to catch poachers. I could have told him, 
but he wouldn't have listened, and even if he had, wouldn't have believed me. I walked alone in the hills, spent days fishing on the loch. The interference of mortality was an anachronism. The land was all land, the rocks all rocks. Man's insistence on making his presence felt, showing proof of his existence was futile against the weight of this wilderness. My sadness, even anger, that communities once prospered in these glens altered as I began to realise that perhaps they did not prosper. Even the ruins of the simple steadings were lost. Nothing remained. The silence was not a death in life, as I had supposed, but a life in death, where every living creature was at war. I worked on the book. It was slow. I felt restless. Why did the mountains oppress me? Why did I nurture five chickens in a wired sheep pen as if their survival was a personal victory? Anne worried about my isolation. What is it? she asked. I don't know, I said. She was happy. Those were the best days. She would create a sanctuary of love for her baby so that the world outside could be enjoyed with wonder and joy. Again, I was struck by the sentimentality of the image. I was coming across the hill yesterday, on the other side of the river, and I saw you, I said. Yes, she said. Who was with you? The dogs. There was a girl. He's a boy, she smiled at me. Gypsies were camping at the old sawmill. You like that, don't you? Why? When I first came here, I thought you were typical North American. Hey, after adopting stray children, you'll be talking to fish. I don't talk anymore. I catch them. Let's go sometime, all right? When? Next week. There was no gypsy camp at the sawmill. I went there and checked, and so was surprised to see the child again on the loch shore with Anne when I arrived for the fishing expedition. He was playing in the water beside the boat. He had curly black hair hanging down his shoulders and wore an embroidered white shirt tied at the waist. He had no shoes. He was very young. Hearing my step on the shingles, he darted off into the reeds. Hello, Anne said. What's wrong with him? He's shy of men. We both are. I hadn't noticed. She kissed me on the cheek. Are you a safe sailor? She asked. That depends. On what? Your behaviour. She climbed into the boat taking the rods. I pushed off and jumped in, started the outboard. We sat together as I held the rudder bar, passing Mahananuskachan on the far side and going on towards the west, reaching a bay where a burn dashed down the rocks in a silver waterfall. I cut the engine. We drifted close. I flicked my line free and began to cast. The air was warm. A breeze rippled on the surface. There was no sun. We fished twenty yards from the shore, letting the boat glide slowly down with the oars hanging, casting easily with the wind. We caught three trout, all over a pound. The sun came out. The clouds scattered. We landed in a narrow inlet where trees bent at strange angles of the high banks. I opened the picnic basket and we lay in the sun eating chicken and smoked salmon sandwiches and drinking beer out of bottles. Anne took off her wind cheater and sweater. She was not fat yet, still small and slight, dressed in jeans and a t-shirt and shiny red PVC boots. Her blonde hair was cut short, skin freckled and brown from the last spell of fine weather. We talked. She told me what she had missed in her life here, how it frightened her at first and made her borrow habits from her mother a very organised and dominating woman. She laughed about it now. People do that, I said. You don't, she said. I have nothing to lose, I said. 
You aren't aware of it, she said, but you help me. You have a definite viewpoint, which is good. You say, I don't care what they think. He was determined to do what he feels is right, and I believe my role is to support and encourage him. But I'm losing out right down the line, becoming this other person, the one you call typical North American, like typical French fries. I didn't mean, sure you didn't, but you're right. That's what I am, an unpaid worker in the PR department. No time to sit and discover what it's all about. What is it all about? The baby, a whole lot of stuff, the future, and you feel happy. Don't you? I shrugged. I don't think about it, I said. Maybe you should. I touched her hand. She didn't move. Tell me about the book, she said. I was kneeling, looking down at her. I want to know much more about that. I kissed her. What do you want to know, I asked. Everything, she said. It's not enough, just a little. I kissed her ear, her neck. Shall I begin at the beginning, I said. She sat up and brushed a hand through her hair. The beer's gone to my head, she said. It's gone to mine, too. We're on a fishing trip, remember? We've fished. We've done that part. What's the next part? Lying in the grass. We've done that, too. She turned. Let's collect the things together, she said. It's too hot, I said. We walked along the side of the hill in the sun. She picked flowers. A week later, I went to stay with Aunt Magda in Aberdeenshire. It was my grandmother's 80th birthday. My mother had written from Turkey asking whether I would mind going as neither she nor my father could return for it. My grandmother was eager to hear all the news. I told her of Hugh's plans and pretended everything was working well. I said that I was living at the Bothy, which seemed extraordinary to her, and that I was writing a novel, which seemed even more extraordinary. It's a comedy of manners, I said, set in an imaginary highland glen, concerning a group of crippled children in a big house who become involved with ghosts and goblins and real policemen in search of an escaped convict who is pretending to be the spirit of a long-dead ancestor. Sounds like a winner, my uncle said. On my last evening, when we were alone, Aunt Magda referred to the novel again and said, I'm surprised you aren't tackling something more serious. It is serious, I said. Goblins, she said. I had to say something, I said. I explained the conflicting themes, how their connection affected the way things happened. My own experiences at the castle was a good example. When I stayed there as a child, I had hated it, although I wasn't aware until later what it had been like for her and my mother, what fun they'd had. All I knew was the feeling of my grandparents' disapproval and resentment, which contributed to an atmosphere of permanent gloom. Not resentment against me, but against life itself, the cruelties of fate and inexplicable tragedy of the world. Aunt Magda listened politely. She thought my analysis naive, although didn't say so directly. They had lived in the nursery as much as I, the only difference being there were more of them. She didn't believe that her father and mother had been hardened by their children's deaths. They were hard from the start. You've destroyed my thesis, I said. Of course I haven't, she said. You're writing fiction. It was then that I asked about Fiona, the sister who drowned. Did you ever question your mother, she asked. Sometimes, I said. What does she tell you? She changes the subject. Perhaps she wants to protect you. She said Fiona was rather sad. She had lovely hair, I remember. She was very imaginative and scatterbrained, but I suspect that was less true of her character than a way of avoiding our parents' displeasure. Being the eldest, she was made responsible, and in order to avoid those constrictions, acted incompetent and vague. 
She was far from incompetent, in fact. She only pretended to be. When my mother wanted her to do a chore or take a message and she was nowhere to be found, we said, She's playing with Lachlan. My mother thought Lachlan was one of the village children, and of course that upset her. We weren't supposed to play with the village children, or even speak to them. But Fiona insisted that Lachlan lived with us. He was there in the castle. We said, why doesn't he play with us? And she said, he doesn't like playing with lots of people. He only likes playing with me. We knew he was one of her imaginary friends and didn't think about it, but my mother insisted on meeting him. Fiona said that he wouldn't come. He was frightened. In the end, my mother gave up and we left it at that. One day, I met Lachlan. I was tremendously surprised. I'd been in the kitchen garden picking strawberries for lunch. Your mother was there too, but she was faster than me and had gone on ahead. I wandered back through the rhododendron wood when suddenly I came across Fiona sitting in a tree. There was someone else with her. It looked like a boy, a young boy. I remember he had white clothes. He seemed to be wearing a dress. He was like a boy pretending to be a girl. He had long hair like a girl, but he had a boy's face. And when he saw me, he scrambled through the branches and down to the ground and ran off into the bushes. I stood there amazed. I was only six. I didn't know what was happening. Fiona started throwing fur cones at me. She was furious. I began to cry. Fiona climbed down and took my basket and we walked home together through the bushes. She made me swear not to tell Mama or anyone. She said, swear you didn't see Lachlan. I didn't know he was Lachlan. Finding out like that gave me quite a turn. I swore anyway, and then a few weeks later it was Fiona's birthday. What we did on birthdays was pile presents on the person's plate so that when they arrived for breakfast they were all there, a huge mound of presents, tied with coloured ribbons and string. The presents were opened in front of everyone. Fiona disliked that because it was too public. She disliked Christmas for the same reason. Emotions were too precious to be made fun of. She put her hands in her lap and rubbed them together slowly. I was sharing a room with Fiona, and on that morning, the morning of her birthday, she woke early and began putting on her clothes. There was a noise. I don't know what now. She dropped a shoe or something, and I woke and saw her half-dressed. I told her she couldn't leave. It was her birthday, and we had presents. Everyone. She said that was the reason she was getting up early. She didn't want to disappoint us. She was going to meet Lachlan. He had a present for her too, and she couldn't disappoint him either. If I hadn't seen Lachlan, I would have known she was telling lies. But I had seen him, and I thought perhaps he has got a present for her. It was awful. I didn't know what to do. Fiona held my hands and said, Dear Magda, you must believe me, because it's true. I made a promise to be back in time. She said she would. I was full of trepidation. I couldn't understand Lachlan. I couldn't imagine him quite. His life where he came from, why he looked like he did. But I trusted Fiona. She was so much older, so much on her own. We waited at the breakfast table, my father, mother, the servants, nanny, all the children. I knew she would have returned if she could. Something must have stopped her. I couldn't think what. My mother took me outside and tried to force me to say where she'd gone, but I wouldn't. I was sent to my room. I stayed there all morning. The doors were locked and no one was allowed to come in. Our nanny brought me some food at lunchtime. Fiona was still missing. Nanny said, You don't know where she is, do you? I said, No. She said, Do you think she's run away? I said, She wouldn't run away, she promised. Nanny was a very patient and long-suffering woman. She said Fiona was in danger 
and only I could help. But it was too late. One of the gillies brought her body back. He'd found her in the river. Did you discover about Lachlan? I asked. He must have been a tinker's child, she said. There used to be a number of people like that in those days, travelling the roads, selling things. Some were gypsies, others were tinkers. We liked the tinkers best. They told wonderful stories and weren't frightening like the gypsies. Often, when we went into the kitchen to see cook, there might be a tinker sitting at the table, having a meal or a cup of tea. They loved children and made a great fuss of us. I remember they smelled of horses. I remember that most of all, their smell. Cook wouldn't have gypsies in because she said they had powers. We wanted to know what those powers were and longed to meet one to find out. But Cook was wrong because tinkers were rogues, very charming and sweet, a bit like the Irish, but not very trustworthy. Already it was dark. We were sitting in a small drawing room and neither of us had thought of switching on a light. The fire glowed with the embers of logs lit two hours earlier. The door opened and my uncle entered. What are you two plotting, he said. We had no idea it was so late, Aunt Magda said. Next morning I left early and arrived in the village before lunch. Roger was at the office. He said that Hugh wouldn't be coming in today. He was visiting the crofters. I drove up the glen past the bare foundations of the freezing factory into the hills. I saw no one. Silence gathered in the blowing grasses, although the hum of a motor was a sound enclosed within its vacuum. The castle was empty. I waited. No one came. I drove on to the bothy. Plates in the sink had been washed and stacked on the shelf. My bed was made with new linen, clothes folded in the chest of drawers. The floor was scrubbed and dusted. I changed into old cords and sweater, pulled on my boots and went out to feed the hens. I noticed that the garden had been weeded. I walked down to the loch. The boat was gone. I wandered along the shore on the near side following the track. The wind was blustery but not cold the sun flashing between clouds. I walked two miles to where the track climbed into the heather above Mahan and Liskachan. I rested in a hussock of grass. The loch curved away to the west and I could see almost its whole length. I searched for the boat. It was not there. The waters roared below me. I clambered down and peered over the rock. I saw the boat spinning in the whirlpool, its oars missing. Anne's red boots and windcheater awash under the seat and knelt on the cliff-top, unable to move, spray spitting, bursting into my face. As I watched, the boat sank. It happened very fast. I crawled back into the heather. I was breathing hard. I stood up and walked along the northern shore. The dark hills grew darker. I shouted, my voice dying in the air. I could have walked to the sea. It would have made no difference. A bird cried over the water, a shrill high squeal. The wind dropped. I returned, hurrying along the path. When I reached the bothy, night had fallen. I took the van and drove to the castle. The lights were on, the drawing-room door open. Hugh sat in the chair beside the fire reading a newspaper. His eyes were stone. I said, Anne's dead, he said. Oh, yes. He was calm and distant like a man glimpsed through a window of a moving train. We collected brandy from the store cupboard and blankets from the chest on the landing. The moon was full. In the stables was an old boat strapped to the frame of a trailer. We reversed the Land Rover and fixed it to the bar. Oars were standing against the wall. I slipped them in with the rollocks. Hugh carried the spare outboard across from the garage and I collected a can of petrol. We drove to the loch and hitched the trailer in the water. 
Hugh screwed the outboard down and filled it with petrol. I pushed the boat off using one of the oars as a punt pole. Hugh started the engine. I sat in the front. Hugh steered. The light was silvery grey against the black shadows of the shore. We kept close, moved slowly. I watched the line of rocks and grass, the contours of peat walls. We stopped to investigate a submerged tree trunk. Hugh shouted, listened, shouted again. Waves lapped the bottom of the boat. We continued up the loch. Hugh's face was a skull. Four hinds bounded away from one of the burns. We stopped again in the bay two miles beyond the turn. I opened the brandy and we drank. Wind rippled across the water. It was colder now. We seemed to wait for hours. Neither of us spoke. Hugh started the engine and turned into the centre of the loch. The wind was sharper, waves rolling past. I huddled in my sweater. Hugh steered towards Mahananuskachan. I expected him to pull away and take us down the last stretch to where the Land Rover stood on the beach, but he didn't. He kept going. In the distance I heard a growling roar. I looked over. We were close to the rocks. I could see spray bursting up the wall. Hugh cut the engine and we drifted. I jumped for the oars, rammed them in, pushed hard, forcing us to stop. I felt the tug of the whirlpool against the wooden spars. I pulled with all my strength. We seemed stuck. The boat began to twist. The shiny rocks loomed above. I fought with the oars. I couldn't see Hugh. He was behind me. I heard the engine whine. The boat rocked. We broke free. The engine stopped again. I turned. Hugh was staring at the pool. Something was down there, struggling in the water. I saw tiny white arms. It was the gypsy child. The boat drifted closer. I screamed. The child spun in the spiral, white shirt billowing like a flower. Hugh threw off his jacket. I caught him by the waist. The boat tipped and plunged. Hugh pushed me back and I fell against the seat. The boat bent with a spin, water flooding us. I jerked a rollock from its pinion. Hugh was about to dive. I hit him on the side of his head and he dropped. The boat was half full of water. I grasped the starting handle and pulled. The engine caught. I gave it full throttle. The board shivered. Suction held us. The engine squealed, roared, and the boat jumped, slewing wide into broken water beyond the hole. I steered into shingle at the corner where the burn came in, stopped the engine, and pulled the blades up before striking stones. I helped Hugh onto the bank. We were soaked to the skin. He moaned. I held him. He was weaker now, his breath gasping, lips stretched, eyes bulging like eggs. I pushed him up the hill. He stumbled. Wisps of cloud shaded the moon. The air was icy. I touched Hugh's arm. It was as stiff as wood. The child was standing beside the boat. He ran towards us. Hugh lifted him into his arms. The child clung to his neck. I couldn't speak. My mind was frozen. Hugh walked to the loch. He pushed the boat out. I fell to my knees. The sky opened. I saw birds flying across the sun. I was in an aeroplane over a desert. The desert was blue like the sea, although it wasn't the sea. There were palm trees and caravans of camels and sand dunes stretching across the whole length of the earth. Suddenly the engine spluttered and coughed and we began to descend. I was alone. There was no one else in the aeroplane. I walked through to the front to find the pilot, but there was no pilot. I sat at the controls. I pulled the joystick. The plane steadied and I began to glide. Behind me I heard the sound of sobbing. I looked through the cabin door. Anne was sitting on one of the seats. I wanted to comfort her, and yet I couldn't leave the controls. I watched the sand dunes coming up at me. 
At last, before the crash came, I turned to run, but tripped and fell through the floor. I was in a room with white walls. I heard the sobbing quite clearly. A woman stood at the window. She was small. She seemed very old. I asked where I was, and she said, You mustn't distress yourself. She brought me soup in a bowl. I drank the soup. Everything became dim. I was in the courtyard of the castle, ringing the bell of the cook's flat. It was night and the moon was shining. No one answered. I walked on to the road and the child was with me. I said, I didn't forget you. He smiled, resting against my shoulder. There was blood on his hands and arms. I said, we'll go to the river and wash it off. But the old woman stood in my path. I laid the child in the grass and went with her. She said, you're safe now. I remembered the child and said we must find him because he'll awake and feel afraid. The old woman said we shall talk about that in the morning. The room was full of sun. The old woman stood at the window looking out. I thought all this has happened before. I'm dreaming. I'm no longer alive and my dreams are repeating themselves. I asked whether we had talked about the child and she said yes and came and sat on a chair beside my bed. Her voice had a lilting softness and yet her face was scarred with grief. I said, let me touch your hand. She said, no, that you must never do. Then she told me a story. She said, once two brothers lived at the castle. Roderick the elder married the daughter of the Lord of the Isles, a beautiful fair girl called Shona. Callum the younger was forever racing through the forests, hunting day and night. He was the best horseman, a fearless warrior. Roderick was strong, a leader, he was chief of the clan. In time, a child was born, a son. During the Feast of Celebration, a woman approached Roderick and told him the child was not his. Roderick asked, Who are you to tell me this? The woman said, I am from the islands. She had been shown as wet nurse, but was banished as a witch many years earlier for warning her father that she had seen black crows circling the beach at Kyle and his body with them soaring like an eagle. Later, the Lord of the Isles took a force of young men to attack the farms on the mainland. It was a reprisal for a boat that had been stolen the year before. During the skirmish, the Lord was wounded, captured and thrown from a cliff. The fall broke his back. He lay on the beach three days and three nights before he died, and the birds stripped the flesh from his bones. Roderick knew the story of the witch's prophecy and was enraged by her appearance at the feast, thinking she brought evil with her and so ordered that she be taken at once and left on the road beyond the river. She told him, Your brother has stolen the light from your eye, the blood from your veins, and this darkness you feel in your heart shall remain with you and your house forever. Roderick's love for his brother was as strong as his love for Shona. He tried to forget the warning, and yet a sadness filled him with a terrible longing for peace. The child grew, and his likeness to Callum became unmistakable. Shona comforted Roderick, and when she did so, lying in his arms, whispering his name, he knew the fear was of his own making. One day, six years after the birth of the child, he left the castle to make a journey to the western regions. At the head of the glen, where the track crossed the watershed, his horse stumbled and cut its foreleg. The wound was deep. Roderick bathed and bandaged it with a napkin and returned on foot, leading the animal. It was night. He stabled and fed the horse and lay down in the straw and fell asleep. When he awoke, the sun was up. He left the stables and entered the castle. All was quiet. He climbed the stairs and found Shona and Callum together, the child sleeping between them. 
He dragged Callum from the bed and beat him senseless to the floor. He drew a dagger from his belt and gouged out his eyes. These he brought shiny and trembling to Shona. He carried the body into the courtyard and tied it to the back of the good grey stallion. He returned for the child. Shona pleaded with him for the life of her son. He held the knife to her breast, intending to kill her also, but her beauty was like the lily, and her eyes as the clear sea. He took the child's hand, and together they walked to where the horse stood in the courtyard. He held the boy close, so that he would not see the body, and they rode to the loch. He told the child to gather flowers from the shore. He carried Calm's body into the boat and covered it with his plaid. He called the boy and then rode up the loch to where the waters roared under the cliff. As they neared the whirlpool, he lowered Callum over the side. Although wounded and dying, the water revived him, and he gripped firm to the boat. Roderick gave the flowers to the boy, and lifting him in his arms, tossed him like a grain sack into the heart of Mahan and Luskachan. Callum heard the boy's screams and let go, his blind head turning towards the sound. The water sucked them down. It was done. Roderick forced the boat free and rowed back. When he returned and Shona learned of a child's fate, she cursed him and cried out for vengeance to the gods of her father, beat her fists against the wall until her knuckles bled and the bones in her fingers broke, and then she crawled on her knees through marsh stalks and mud to the shingle bank of the river where she laid her head under the water and her body was like a swan on the white sands and fish played in the tresses of her hair. I turned my face to the rocks. I wept. I swam through seas thick with weed, diving and leaping in the sun. Only with strength could Mahan and Uskachan be conquered. I arrived at last on the shore, and the shore was like a wild garden, and the child picked flowers, and when his arms were full came to where I was and gave them to me, and I said, You have destroyed them, and flung the flowers down. I opened my eyes. The room was changed. I had to wake you, Aunt Magda said. It's almost lunchtime. I lay in bed, floating back and forth, the vividness of the dream fierce within me. I had not moved. I was myself. Nothing had altered. I washed and shaved. I dressed quickly. I felt the exhilaration of a man reprieved from death. I wanted to speak to Anne. I wanted to hear her voice. I went downstairs. The house was still and quiet, and the drawing room empty. I picked up the telephone. There was no answer from the castle, and so I rang the office. Roger said, that he had seen Anne earlier up at the loch. She's gone fishing, he said. She took one of the children from the gypsy camp. The Curse of Mahananuskachan by Angus Wolfe Murray. So how I came to record this story was a little bit of a mess up, really. First of all, there have been some requests for a Scottish story. And I love doing my Scottish accent. My dad was a Scot, but it isn't obviously my native accent. So anyway, I relished the chance of doing it. And I've, I've got a book called uh, Scottish Ghost Stories. And it looked like an old book. And some of the stories looked like they were from the 20s and 30s, the sort of thing that we've been recording, which is perfectly public domain and out of copyright. So I recorded it. And as I read through it, I thought, well, this is set in probably might be the 30s, but it might even be the 50s. And it was by Angus Wolfe Murray. And it was only after I'd recorded it, it's quite a long story, and edited Well, I hadn't edited it completely. Uh, and I realised that Mr. Wolfe Murray is still alive. He lives at Traquair in the Scottish borders. 
and he's a pretty famous guy. His family appear in the peerage, and he founded with his late wife, he founded Canongate Publishers, and they discovered tons of really important Scottish, really popular, best-selling Scottish writers in the last century, over the last century. So I thought, oh, goodness me. So it's not, because if it's a living author, as you know, I like to, uh, first of all, get their permission, and secondly, interview them. Now, of course, I'm not making any money out of this, but it still technically counts as a derivative work, and that's fine with the author's permission. So I've tried to contact him. He's about 83, 84 now, and I've, he's got a Twitter account, but it no, doesn't look like anything's been done with it since 2015. Uh, there's a rudimentary Facebook account, but it doesn't exist. I can't find an email. Um, his children exist. They're all very, um, you know, eaten, educated, done well for themselves in the world. A lot of them are literary uh, writers and things. So anyway, Mr. Wolf Murray, I would love to have his permission. And if he doesn't like me doing this, well, I'll take it down. But given I put the work in anyway, I thought, well, I was going to do it. And it met all the other criteria. So there we are. Uh, that's him. So I'm glad he's alive. And I would like to contact him. And I would really like his permission. The other reason I was drawn to the story was the title, Mahananuskachan. Now, my first degree was in Celtic, and I spent, uh, in a long time ago now, I spent uh, a summer in Stornoway in the Isle of Lewis, uh, learning Gaelic. Pretty rusty now. I actually did more Irish Gaelic in Connacht in the West, and obviously quite a lot of Welsh. So... I wanted to, and um, over the past couple of years, we've holidayed in the Scottish Highlands. There's not much Gaelic left there, to be fair, in uh, in the mainland, on the mainland, even on Sky, there was only a little bit, and that I heard anyway. So that's sad, but last year we were driving up the A9 to Inverness, and we go through some of the east, sort of easty Highland country, and this really, this story brought that landscape back to me. I think it's, particularly the first part, I think it's written really well. He writes, he tends to write a lot of short sentences, and so it was easy to read. Some of them, particularly the Victorian ones, you're tripping over your words and you have to edit it a lot, but I liked it. And I liked the, the love affair, and it struck me, I don't know when he actually wrote it, it struck me that it was the story of a young man. In the story, he's 22, he's just been to Oxford, and he falls in love with his older cousin's wife, Anne. So that was quite sweet. I mean, you know, uh, yeah, moral issues and all that, and I'm not supporting adultery and whatever, but, you know, it was, it was quite an innocent thing. He seems to me a bit of an idealist. And the other thing I liked about it was the feeling for the story of the Scottish Highlands. The clans had owned everything in common. It was the old Celtic tribal system. And then during the sort of 17th, 18th centuries, the, the lairds, the chiefs, realised that um, if they moved over to a, an English or a continental system, a feudal system, basically, the chiefs were no longer just the, the, the daddies of the clan and the clan owning everything. They changed to become the feudal lords and therefore the landowners. So in an instant, the land from belonging to the people belonged to, this is maybe a romantic view, but I think this is how it was, belonged to the chief. And the chief then could do what he wanted with it. And with many of them, it was to clear the people off the land so they could put sheep on. So there was tremendous hardship. And the highlands from having a huge population were, were cleared. And that was devastating for the, for the Gallic language and culture, a culture which goes a long, long way back, back to the Iron Age. 
Um, if probably further, to be honest. But there we are. So, and he felt that. And but he says something about it. You know, at one point, maybe they didn't prosper. So it was an intelligent look at it. So the story itself starts off pretty realistic, uh, and then he goes to see his aunt Magda. Now he's already he's already heard about Lachlan. Well, Lachlan is the ghost boy, isn't he? So his aunt tells him about Fio. He's already seen this Lachlan with Anne, who he's fallen in love with. Who and she tells him some story that he's a gypsy boy, and but there is no gypsy camp. And then his aunt Magda talks about her that you know his other aunt Fiona, who died when she was ten, who had apparently been lured to her death in the river by Lachlan. That's what it appears to be. Then he falls asleep, and we don't actually realise it. The only clue we've got is Aunt Magda says she didn't realise how late it was. And the next bit is a dream sequence. So, in, but we don't. We're not told that. And I was like, what's going on here? Because it went quite dreamy and surreal. I don't know how he wrote it, but I got the impression it was one of those pants. Pant, you know, you can either be a plotter or a pantser. And if you're a plotter, you plot everything out. If you're a pantser, you just wait for the flow. Uh, and Stephen King's actually a, a pantser, as it turns out. And a lot of other people, J.K. Rowling is a massive plotter. So he, it's all very dreamy. And he goes back. And there are some hints to that, um, that it is a dream. First of all, when he tells... Hugh, that Anne is dead. He was very, oh, okay, very cold about it. Then they have this bizarre trip on the, on the loch and uh, they spend looking at tree trunks and spend a couple of hours and then they find her in the whirlpool of Mahananuskachan. Uh, there she is, well, the remains of her and the remains of the child Lachlan. And then it gets very surreal and he's on an aeroplane above the desert and he, there's an old woman, uh, some of this was very symbolic and struck me as very archetypal and Jungian even. Um, but the old woman then tells him the story of the legend of uh, Callum and Roderick and an adulterous triangle whereby Sh- um, Lachlan is the bastard child of Roderick's brother Callum. And then there's revenge and Lachlan is thrown into Mahananuskachan. And there you go. So, And it seems to me that what's happened is the risk then is the curse is that an adulterous triangle, a family, you know, he's his cousin, not his brother. And there is a hint then, although it's not stated, that during the fishing trip, Anne becomes pregnant. Was it Hughes or is there something unsaid by the narrator? Did something more happen when, you know, he says, oh, she went picking flowers, but did something more happen? And was the child that Anne is carrying actually our anonymous narrators and not her husband, Hughes, which would make her you know, ripe material for the curse and to be dragged down into the whirlpool. The only slight anomaly there that I haven't figured out is that Fiona, the 10-year-old who got killed on her birthday by Lachlan, or lured to her death anyway, she was an adulteress. So I don't know why she fell prey, unless it's just a more general curse. But there we are. The only other thing I'd like to say would be that although these were ghost stories, perhaps because it's set in the Scottish Highlands, they felt like the fairy folk to me, Lachlan, and the old woman of the dreams. He says to her, she says to him rather, don't touch me, you can't touch me. And that's very fairy-like, you mustn't touch the fairies or eat their food or you'll be taken into fairyland. And of course, um, the Scottish Highlands is full of fairy law and Lachlan himself. And of course, there is a, a figure called uh, um, Van Nee, the, the washing woman. I probably said that with an Irish accent, actually. Ben in Scots, yeah. Ben Nia and the washing, the woman washing and the washer at the Fords. This is a figure that heroes come across and she's washing linen 
in the ford and the blood is seeping so it foretells the death now the woman isn't explicitly this but there's something about it there's about the water spirit and something so anyway it struck me that this had a lot of fairy lore in it even though not stated the uh, the, the name mahan and uskachan mahar is mother and iska is water so mahan uskachan is the mother of the waters interestingly in scots gaelic they say but it's raining they say hantiskaon so it's ra- you know it's ra- the water is in it you know don't say that in irish basteach is uh, rain in irish iska is water Uske, uh, and uh, so iskebar, water of life, is whiskey. That's where we get our English word whiskey. So there you go, you've learned something. So, interestingly, this story, last story, last week's stories was Boomerang by, it set it a long way away in uh, Borneo, um, a long way from Scotland, climate-wise as well, but an adulterous triangle. So uh, that's completely unconscious of me. I just, I didn't pick it for that theme, but there we have it. But of course, you know, with a, with a horrible outcome, but not quite as horrible as Boomerang. He doesn't put anything in his ear. So there you go. So I like the story. And if uh, Angus Wolf Murray would like me to take it down, then I will. Not reluctantly, sadly, sadly. I mean, I respect his copyright and his, his decisions over his work. There we are. So we come to the end of another week. Um, podcast numbers are falling. I don't know why. I think it might be the end of um, lockdown and people have got better things to do now. If th- the show is completely supported by the appreciation of listeners, so if you would like to show your appreciation, I've tried to simplify this, go over to my Kofi page, coffee page, KO-FI. If you look, there's a link in the show notes, but if you just Google it, KO-FI. Tony Walker, and you'll find my page, and you could show your appreciation by buying me a coffee. Also, there are a number of things, another of uh, you know some of my own stories as audiobooks. Two of them, at least, are free, and probably more will come on. So you know you can go and download those at least two stories for free. So nip over to coffee, show your appreciation, and get some free stuff. Okay, thanks again. I said I was going to do Metzotent this week, but I was wrong. It's Metzotent next week. And then I think I'm going to do the Beckoning Fair one because we've had some requests for that. And then from Leanne from Sweden, she has been uh, twittering me about uh, and supporting me. Thank you very much, Leanne. Thank you, everybody. Thank you, Claire McNally. Thank you, thank you everybody, for your coffees. Uh, Georgina Bruce, of course, who has said some lovely things about her reading. You know, that's actually just come out. Little Heart. Well received. Yeah, good. So I'm pleased about that. So I'm, I'm sort of rambling a bit, but relevantly rambling. So it's all the thank yous. Thank yous are very important. So thank you. Thank you. Uh, thank you. 